So the reading is from Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Fantastic. Let me pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, uh, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be pleasing to you, the Lord our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, as we've been saying, we find ourselves in the wake of uh, uh, the murder of George Floyd and all of those images that were broadcast across the world because of the technology that we have uh, available uh, to us and the outrage that has followed. And uh, as I've shared a little bit in in my own local church, many feeling uh, like as they see other people being uh, victimized, treated unfairly, uh, that um, that could be them and indeed has been them in some cases. And so the question for us today is, how can we begin to turn the tide on injustice in society? And I want to suggest to you that one part of the answer is sacrificial multi-ethnic praise of Jesus in our churches, sacrificial multi-ethnic praise of Jesus in our churches. And so I want to take us to Revelation chapter 5 and just to remind you, uh, this is a, a vision of the reality that's going on in heaven now that helps us to know how to live on earth now. So it's a picture of the reality of what's going on in heaven now that helps us to know how to live on earth now. It's apocalyptic literature, which means it's full of pictures that are very often alien to us at first, but uh, are based on Old Testament imagery that would have been understood at the time. And, and we can dig into it and understand it ourselves as well. And we're zooming in particularly into what is happening in the very throne room of God, the very throne room of God himself. And if you've ever watched a TV show where the camera zoomed in on a digital timer and uh, you see a hand with a man with a pair of scissors or pliers trying to decide whether to cut the red or the blue wire and that timer is sort of wrapped around some explosives. That's the kind of tension that we find ourselves in at the beginning of Revelation chapter uh, five. Let me read those first three verses again. Uh, then, and this is the Apostle John sharing this uh, vision, 
He says in chapter uh, five, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God the Father, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Now this scroll, what is going on with this scroll? This scroll is essentially God's plan to save his people in the end and to bring justice in the end, to save his people in the end and to bring justice in the end. The picture again seems alien to us, but in uh, ancient times, uh, someone's last will and testament would be in a seal, a scroll that was sealed in this way. The, the point is who can open this seal so that the instructions contained within for the end of time can be completed. And in a world full of injustice and evil, as we know that we live in, in so many ways, you can see why John responds as he does in verse four. He says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. But wonderfully, the story doesn't end there. We get to verse five and we read, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. Who is this lion? Who is this root of David? Uh, next verse says that this is the, the Lamb of God. This is all about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who can open the scroll, who can essentially put God's plan to bring salvation in the end and justice in the end into place. And at that, as we skip through a few more verses to verse nine on the next uh, slide, uh, we see that heaven erupts in praise because of this. Uh, so this is better than the canned cheers that you're hearing if you're watching the Premier League football again, or better than uh, Usain Bolt winning the Olympics. Heaven erupts in praise in verse nine. And uh, all of heaven in verse nine, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain with and with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. I want to just uh, bring out a couple of things uh, from what is going on here. And the first one that I want to bring out is that what we're seeing is a picture of multi-ethnic praise, a picture of multi-ethnic praise. So in verse nine, the picture is people from all uh, different heritages praising God. To be clear, it's not that everyone will be saved, but it's that people from everywhere will be praising uh, God. And so implication number one, our ethnic heritage will remain even in heaven. Our ethnic heritage will remain even in heaven. Now, if you're part of the majority culture uh, in life in your country, I'm well aware that you don't often necessarily think of yourself in terms of uh, white, for example. But if you are a minority in a majority culture, you can't help but think of that. So just imagine going into a party and uh, it's, a, it's a black tie event, everyone's in tuxedos and you walk in in a jeans and t-shirt. Now, uh, everyone may be very nice and polite and um, uh, there may be some differences between the people in the tuxedos, different color waistcoats and so on, but there is going to be a huge gulf between you and then you're going to be very aware of that. And they themselves may well be thinking, 
oh, I wonder why he's different. I wonder who's let him in. I wonder what his intentions are. And that is just the reality that people in the minority can feel in a majority uh, culture. But this isn't simply about people who feel like outsiders, um, knowing that their ethnic heritage is important. Actually, the Bible says that God created these different ethnicities. So Acts chapter 17, out of one man, you made every nation of men. This is the fulfillment of God's plan since the beginning of time, that people from all nations will be blessed, will gather and praise him. So here's what I'm saying, multi-ethnic praise in heaven, there will be black and white and Slovakian and South African and Croatian and Caribbean and people from Dorset and Dundee and from the inner city and from suburbia and from remote tribes, all praising God together. Christ will be the main thing. Everything else will be subordinated to that. Christ is the main thing. He's what brings them together. And yet those differences in ethnicity are retained. So that's implication number one. Implication number two, there are no second class citizens. Staying with verse nine, notice how this picture was obtained. So they sang a new song, verse nine, saying you're worthy to take the scroll, Jesus, and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased people from every tribe, tongue and nation. So Jesus paid the highest price for all of these people. That means there is no second class citizens. I remember recently uh, walking past a second hand uh, clothes shop near where I lived and I saw as I just passed incidentally in the window a jacket. I saw this jacket. I thought this this looks like a really incredible jacket. And it was just spur of the moment there. I saw this jacket. I thought, let me try this on. And before I walked in, I set a bar. I said, well, if it's less than this, I'll, I'll buy it. Just, I tried this jacket on. It fit me like a glove, like a glove. I thought, wow, I've just got to get this jacket. But then I asked the price and the price was double the amount that I'd set before I went into the shop. At the end of the story was, I paid the price. I, I thought it was worth paying the price for this uh, jacket. I paid over the odds. And in a much bigger, more substantial way, God has paid over the odds for us. Jesus gave his blood, his life for us. And he did it for people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And because he did that, that means that there are no second class citizens. Uh, he's paid his blood, purchased us uh, for all of them, for all of his people. So two implications and I've said this is multi-ethnic praise and I've talked about how uh, uh, our ethnic heritages remain and that there are no second class citizens. But I said at the beginning that this picture of heaven shows us how we are to live on earth now picture of heaven shows us how we're to live on earth now. Well, how does that play out? Well, before we get to society at large, uh, the way that we can put this into practice most quickly uh, is as we act differently as a countercultural community in our local churches. And so very practically then, thinking about loving across cultural lines. So here's a challenge. Could we love across cultural lines? Now, of course, uh, we will have uh, close friends and relationships that have grown up over time and no one's saying that we need to abandon relationships that we have. But could we reach out to someone who is different from us? It's worth saying that when the Bible talks about tribes and language and peoples and nations, 
how the Bible defines ethnicity can include things like social class. So you may think, well, actually, we're all very similar, but are, are there people who are, who are different in, in that they have different history, shared experience, values from the ones that you would automatically have? And could you reach out to someone different from you? Might start just by listening to them. There are people who are people of colour. You might say, how are you feeling in light of the stuff that's been in the news? But could you push further? Could you eat with them? Could you offer to pray with them? Uh, could you pray for them and, and see how they're doing in weeks to come? Could you find ways of reaching out across cultural lines, maybe a little bit more than you have at the moment, or maybe to one more person than you are at the moment? There's one very practical application. Second application might be, uh, thinking about how the different heritages that are part of our church might be part of our worship. So could the music of a particular culture or the, the, the prayers or languages of a particular culture somehow make their way more prominently into our worship? Not necessarily every Sunday, not necessarily in every area, but could they somehow be better represented in the year-round life of our church, depending on our context. So look, two very practical things to think about. I realise our context will be very different in terms of how we can or are able to apply those, whether in the, the congregation that we have already or maybe thinking about reaching outside of that. Loving across cultural lines and thinking about how different heritages might be more part of our worship as we meet Sunday by Sunday. But as, I, as we finish, the last thing I want to say is that that putting this into practice will take sacrifice, will take sacrifice. And I want to just take us to uh, the deliberate contrast that, uh, uh, that, that John, the, the writer of Revelation, draws out in verses five and six. So I just want to take us back to, to what he said in verses five and six. So we'll need to go back one more slide and just notice what happens here. John is weeping. And an angel, the, the elder, says to him, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Now, uh, that phrase, lion of the tribe of Judah, is an Old Testament phrase speaking of the strength of the Messiah to come. That phrase, the root of David, is speaking of the royal blood of the Messiah to come. What sort of person are you expecting to appear when you hear those phrases? Maybe a strong king. But here's the interesting thing when we go to verse six. The thing that he sees, the thing that he sees is a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Here's the point. The person who achieves the, the justice and salvation uh, that everyone is yearning for isn't someone who comes with power, but who's someone who comes having sacrificed hugely, who comes in weakness, slain as a lamb. And as we know, uh, this is achieved through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I know for myself that unfortunately in my heart, there are all kinds of prejudices, all kinds of biases, all kinds of ways in which I, I covet wrongly the advancement of others and, uh, and so on and so forth. And yet Jesus Christ died. He became the lamb who was slain uh, so that uh, the price might be paid for the injustice in my heart and that all the injustice in the world might be put right. But the message for us, other than we can be saved through trusting in that, 
is that as we try and imitate it, it will take sacrifice. So if we're in the majority culture in our church or in our society, it may mean giving up comfort or time or braving fear. If we find ourselves in the minority culture in our church or in our context, it may mean uh, not repaying evil for evil, being patient, being quick to forgive when well-meaning comments come out wrong. But for all of us, it will take sacrifice. We'll do it imperfectly. And so that's why we're so thankful for what we see in verse 6, that Christ was the one who did it perfectly for us. We'll never get perfect justice this side of the last day. And yet Christ did it perfectly for us. I've overrun my time, uh, so I'm going to stop there and I'm going to uh, pray uh, and then hand back over to Claire. Let me pray for us. Our loving Heavenly Father, uh, there is so much in this passage. I recognise that we have just skimmed the surface in the time that we've had available. But Father, I pray that uh, you might help us to remember this wonderful picture of what is going on in heaven, that it might help us to know how to live now here on earth. We pray, Heavenly Father, in so doing, we would uh, be people who uh, seek to reach out beyond our cultural comfort zones and people who think about how different cultures might be incorporated more in the life of our churches. Pray, Heavenly Father, as we do that, we prepare to, prepare to make the kinds of sacrifices uh, that, um, that Jesus made. Uh, we'll always fail. And so we're thankful that Jesus Christ didn't and that his sacrifice means that people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation might be able to join together on that last day, singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And we pray it in his great name. Amen.